You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is, is this The is Hour. Is You're listening hour. to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. Coming up on the show... Tom Faber investigates sustainability in music formats. So if we look at, say, 150 gram vinyl, that's about half a kilo of embodied carbon just based on the PVC. That doesn't include manufacturing, distribution, energy use in warehouses, retail stores. And Crystal Rodriguez explores the delicate art of releasing a posthumous record. I think it's important to continue the legacy of artists. Death is a very difficult thing. And when artists are very prolific, I feel like it's a shame to be limited by this moment. First up, Chow Ravens came to visit me in the studio to discuss her long-form article for RA that dives into India's electronic music scene, a community of a few thousand in a country of 1.3 billion. So, Chow joins me in the studio now. Hello. Hello. Uh, welcome to the hour. So you've been on an adventure. Would you like to tell us some more? <laughs> I, I I was on a, an adventure. Yeah, um, it was a bit of a two-part adventure. So in December 2017, I went to Delhi and met all kinds of people there in Delhi who were involved in doing house and techno-related stuff in Delhi, and kind of got a taste for what they were up to. And one person in particular who I met was Sarah Chawla, who is the organizer of Magnetic Fields Festival. And I kind of determined that I needed to get to this festival. So a year later, I uh, went back, went to Magnetic Fields. After the festival, I went back to Delhi and really tried at least to get a picture of what is happening there. And I mean, I say tried because obviously nobody can just walk into a city and just like understand a scene immediately. But yeah, I got to see really some of the kind of hard work that goes into trying to build something um, in a city like Delhi, which is in many ways quite hostile to nightlife. And one of the things I found was uh, a radio station called Box Out. And Box Out FM is this like really brilliant little like super spirited community radio station started by this one guy, DJ Mo City. Mo, who is just this completely inspirational, um, resilient, like dogged guy who is just determined that he's going to make stuff happen in Delhi. And through him, I met some of the people who are, who are resident on the show, but also people who play at this weekly party that he throws. And this weekly party happens at a club called Summer House. Uh, Summer House is next door to another club called Auro. They're basically the two clubs that Delhi has for this type of music. That's basically it. Um, in a city of like 24 million people. They basically have these two spaces. They're like 300 capacity each. They're on the same road, they're next door to each other. They bring in some amazing stuff. Like even while I was there, they had Gono over from Japan. Um, I've looked back at all through the listings and they've had a lot of UK people, um, Madam X and Flavor D and uh, Flo Dan, stuff like that. They've had Helena Half. they've had Stingray. All the people that you'd expect like a, a capital city to have but just within this scene that's really tiny. And I guess what I wanted to write about was how that could be, like how you could be in this huge city with all of these young people and have a scene that's like a few hundred 
a thousand people. When you were at the radio, did you get a sense of what restrictions people face in the city for trying to make a scene or grow a scene? Yeah, so partly when I ask this question, people like Sarah and her husband Mumbir, they organise Magnetic Fields together, they're kind of uh, confused by it, I guess. They're kind of baffled. They're like, well, we've we've hit the cool kids here. We've got, we've got the heads in. We've got their friends of friends. We're reaching a bit of a natural barrier. What can we do about that? Um, and the same with Mo, who runs radio. He's, you know, he puts on nights week after week, but it seems to be hard to expand it. And I mean, initially, one of the things I went over there for was to talk about how uh, women in the scene are trying to become more involved. And that's partly through some projects that Sarah has been running. Uh, she's run a lot of workshops to do with uh, production, DJing, uh, and other things to do with like sort of more industry business aspects. And they're bringing in more women, which is great. And one of the things that's happened is that uh, a female DJ collective has formed, which is obviously like a, a great kind of apparently globally applicable solution, right? And one of the things they've done which has made quite a big impact, is organising transport for themselves. Because in Delhi, for instance, just getting to and from a venue late at night is dangerous. Um, and that's like one element. In the club also, there are a lot of personal safety and agency issues to be dealt with. Sometimes security doesn't really know what you're about, you know? You have to be able to trust security and bar staff to be able to support you and protect you in dangerous situations. And that's something that they're kind of trying to work on and trying to change. But yeah, also they now have a DJ collective. So they have all these women who play all different kinds of music. Uh, and they have a weekly residency at Box Out Wednesdays, which is this party at Summer House. Uh, when I was there, they were up playing on the roof and there's just like a rotating kind of cast of all of them, like having a go and sharing, putting on lineups. So that's one aspect. But then that kind of expanded more. I was like, well, okay, cool. It looks like the women are kind of, you know, they've, they've kind of got a handle on this. Like, this is going well. Um, where's everybody else? And we talked a little bit about the the kind of lack of integration between that scene and the, like, gay clubbing scene in Delhi. Those two things are not integrated. And then there's the fact that, like, the, the people who are involved in this scene we're talking about the top 10% wealthiest people you know anything below that you you probably can't even afford really to do any of these things and so the question then kind of opened up like well it's almost like a, a petri dish for any kind of like social change in India like the social divisions are so huge it's a country that's so unbelievably unequal from top to bottom that to just say oh let's get more people going to a club is not as simple as that right you have to you have to make things accessible and that in itself is just this huge task for them but now they're kind of uh, working more on on that type of integration so the one gay club in Delhi that's like 
known gay club. It's called Kitty Sue. It's part of a five-star hotel. And there's a few of them in India that are all part of this hotel chain. The guy who owns it is the son of the hotel magnate who had owned the hotel chain. And he's this like very rich, very powerful person who can therefore run a gay night freely. Uh, homosexuality was illegal in India until last September. So like for him to have been doing that, you know, in the face of that social political situation made quite an impact. What Sarah and Mumbir are doing with their agency, Wild City, is to think about ways to integrate more with Kitty Sue, for instance. So at Magnetic Fields, they had this, uh, they had a venue called the Peacock Club, a stage called the Peacock Club. Um, and on the last night they had Midland playing and they brought some drag queens from Kitty Sue down and it was kind of modelled on, they told me it was modelled on NYC Downlow at Glastonbury. So like drag queens and disco and like integrated fun party. But that as a as a type of party would be kind of unusual. Like you wouldn't have that type of mix normally. So yeah, so that's kind of a snapshot of, of some of the like barriers that are, that that scene faces in terms of growing, in terms of integrating. And I guess even living up to what we all like to think are the sort of values of this scene, this community globally, like the roots of house and techno are in marginalized communities. I guess you could argue like, what's the point in even importing the music if you don't also import the values? I mean, that people could surely argue with me on that if they like, but to me, it's like those things are connected. And if you're like cognizant of the history of those types of music, you have to be thinking about how that plays out in your own community, which I think everyone is doing, uh, but they are working against like a, a kind of a structure that is not friendly to that. And for the focus of the piece that you've written for RA, what can people expect? I think people will be a little bit surprised by some of the hard truths of it, basically. There's a, a story in there about a DJ called Varnica, who is from a city called Chandigarh, which is north of Delhi and she's been DJing for years and uh, she actually had a, a personal encounter with this story of uh, Indian feminist activism because there's been this like huge wave of like feminist activism against sexual harassment particularly after this uh, the gang rape in Delhi in 2012 this horrific gang rape that made headlines around the world and she against her will became part of this narrative and I think there are there are things in the story that kind of underline a fairly like dark reality to some of it. The violence that people face uh, to try and put on an event sometimes against like violent police, for instance. So I think, yeah, perhaps people might expect that it's going to be about how lovely Magnetic Fields is. And Magnetic Fields is so lovely. It's the loveliest festival. But there's a kind of hard truths of it, basically. You can read Chow's full feature on residentadvisor.net. Next, Crystal Rodriguez explores the creative and emotional process of releasing an artist's music after they've passed away. How do we best honour the lives and legacies of those we have lost? After we've laid our loved ones to rest and had a good cry, 
we put their pictures on our walls, share our favorite stories, and celebrate their best qualities and achievements. But in the case of those gone well before their time, the thought always lingers. What if? It's a question that's examined to great lengths when someone's life and work are in the public eye. When musicians pass prematurely, many of them leave behind unfinished or unreleased work. Some of that music gets released, while the rest of it stays locked in a vault or hard drive, never to see the light of day. So what happens when a project is put on hold in the face of grief? In this segment, I explore the delicate art of releasing a posthumous record. Who decides if an unreleased or unfinished project should proceed? How does it come together when its creator is no longer there? And when is something considered truly finished? What purpose does a posthumous record ultimately serve? To answer these questions, I spoke with the Ashes 57, Steve Knutson, Marie Minerva, and Nick Sinna about seeing their friends, collaborators, and favorite artists work to the finish line. First, we'll hear from Ashes 57, a visual artist inspired by underground music. Ashes worked closely with her friend, the footwork pioneer and Tech Life crew leader DJ Rashad, until he passed away in 2014. Two years later, she co-founded Tech Life Records. The label's debut release was a compilation album titled Afterlife, made up of collaborations between Rashad and his peers. It took us a little bit of time to start the label. Basically, it's something Rashad wanted to do. But after when he passed away, it was such a shock that it, we had to take a bit of time. Yeah, it was very difficult. So um, basically, it took us two years to finally announce our first release. Rashad still has like 500 tracks unreleased. But um, all the crew, the Tech Life crew, had tracks in collaboration with him. So Spin and me, we just like sat down one day and um, started to collect tracks from the guys and put it all together. It was very hard to find a name, but um, one day we just realized that Afterlife was the perfect fit for our first release. We could have let it go, but then that was like forgetting about Rashad. The idea of this was terrible. We just thought we needed to release to keep his, his music alive. Spin was in Europe um, end of 2015. We asked um, the whole team to send us few versions of tracks that they had in collaboration with Rashad. All of them had like two or three versions and we sat down one day when we had everything and we just selected the best. We all knew the tracks because Rashad was playing them, that's how we picked them. All the tracks were collaboration. We just thought it was a good um, thing to do to have a collaborating tracks with um, the missing artist and the living uh, um, artist. So um, that's why pretty much all the tracks are a collaboration with um, them in a studio or some of them is like Rashad did like uh, send some stamps and they just finished up in their own way. 
we did the first mastering and it didn't end up working out so we had to redo it but that's really the only kind of issue it was just more like the fact that we were all in a grieving process so it was all very personal beside this everyone just synchronized and um, worked really well together so uh, maybe it doesn't make sense for every artist but um, I feel like maybe in the future we will uh, probably do another release with Rashad unreleased tracks. It's been like now five years since Rashad passed away and uh, since day one like people ask me to send some pictures that I've took for the press and it was impossible for me to look at them. But Rashad's mom like contacted me not long ago and she said, why don't you just work on a book and, and put all those pictures together? I couldn't dare to look at his face and out, at any of the work I've done with him. But um, five years passed and I felt like I was ready finally. So early January, I started to reorganize all my photos. And then I just found about like 500 pictures that no one's seen. And I put them all together in a 340 pages book. It's very personal. At the same time, I feel like it shows um, his recent life. It doesn't show all his life. It doesn't show his life in Chicago. It's just like a glitch of who Rashad was when he was touring in Europe, in Russia and in the US and um, yeah I'm hoping that people will like it we're going to share the profits with the family so um, uh, yeah tune in on the Tech Life Records uh, website and you will find more information Next, we'll hear from Steve Knutson, the founder of Autica Records, which manages the estate and archive of the late Arthur Russell. The multifaceted musician was known to smaller circles of New York's underground, but the extent of his talent and influence wasn't really celebrated until well after his death in 1992. This resurgence is thanks largely to Steve, then an avid fan with extensive record label experience. Steve didn't personally know Arthur, but realized after learning about his unreleased work that if he wanted to hear any of it, he'd have to compile and release it himself. The platform on the ocean. At the time that he was alive, there was only a handful of records out. I didn't really learn anything about Arthur specifically until after he died in 1992. Um, you know, I just knew about a handful of dance records. I knew people that knew him. I knew a few people that worked with him. And the only information I really garnered was he was just like this really eccentric, difficult guy to deal with that made, for some people, he made really magical music. And for others, they just didn't get it at all. So after he died, I read, uh, there was a couple pieces that were out that talked about this massive archive of material that he left behind. And approximately a year after he died, the first posthumous record was released of Arthur's material, which was called Another Thought. 
and that came out on Philip Glass's Point label. And that was assembled and basically finished by a musician named Don Christensen, who did an absolutely incredible job making that record. Don finished a lot of those tracks. Moving 10 years later, when I decided I wanted to do my own thing, I contacted Arthur's partner, Tom Lee, told him that, you know, how much I loved Arthur's music, and I'd, I'd heard about this massive archive, and could we talk about it? I met with Tom, and we got on instantly. And the thing that, that, that um, I think really sold me to Tom was that my interest wasn't in the music that had been released before. My interest in Arthur, you know, grew with each successive record that I could find or tape. You know, after I heard Another Thought, the first posthumous record, it connected the dots to me that this was a musician that transcended any idea of genre and maybe didn't even think so much in genre but was able to go down these different paths and reinvent himself and reinvent this music. And what I wanted to do with Attica, with the unreleased music, and this is, I think, another reason that Tom and I got on so well, was I wanted to really show these different sides of Arthur. Uh, how would you describe the initial state of his archives? You know, um, was it organized? Was it clearly labeled? Or was it kind of in states of disarray almost? Arthur would make compilations of his own music on cassette, and I would call these work tapes. And I would go through those, and I would find songs. And then if it was something that we liked, I would go then try to find the reel, uh, the quarter-inch reel or half-inch reel or whatever that had been the mix down. And from that, we would start assembling the record. It seems like Tom is very involved in, in the process. Oh, absolutely. He has a full approval on everything. I mean, I kind of cobble everything. To, we'll talk about what we want to do, and I'll spend the time to put everything together and track things down, and then and then we'll discuss it, you know? That sounds really nice. It's, it's nice that you can have someone who is so intimately involved with him really be involved on, on that level. Nobody knows Arthur's music more than Tom. Tom probably even knows, knows more about it than Arthur did, you know? And after, you know, Arthur died in 92, tragically from AIDS, you know, Tom went through every scrap of paper, every tape, and just, you know, immersed himself. Tom's whole thing was he really wanted Arthur's music to be heard because during his lifetime, he was known within a small sector of the music scene, particularly in New York and with the dance community. But... Um, Arthur really wanted to be popular, and Arthur really felt that he should be popular, but he didn't really have the, the tools or the wherewithal to make that happen for himself. So posthumously, we've been able to do that, and it's meant so much to, to both Tom, Arthur's parents, and his sisters, and, you know, it's, it's been a big deal for the, for the whole uh, Russell family. I also spoke with Maria Minerva, a musician and singer who was a close friend and collaborator of San Francisco-based producer Chelsea Faith Dolan, a.k.a. Chirushi. After working on a track together for Chirushi's 2015 EP, Memory of Water, they started on a new joint project. But before they could finish, Chirushi was tragically killed in the 2016 Ghost Ship Fire. This past February, two years after her death, the label 100% Silk released Maria and Chirushi's self-titled EP. 
The EP was released this past February, um, more than two years after the fire. So at what point did you decide to return to it? Oh, immediately. Um, I can't begin to explain why it took so long. It's like, um, I'm not happy about it, but I am proud that we, we kept our word and we finished it. So right after the fire, there was a lot of discussion about what we should do with her legacy and the stuff that she left behind. There were art tracks, but then there were also her solo tracks, which I also felt strongly about, and not all of them have come out. Um, one of them was released by her friends in the Bay Area as part of like a like another posthumous release, basically. Then uh, 100% Silk, the label got sued by the families, you know, because it was a, it was a liability lawsuit. Essentially, they were trying to figure out who was responsible for throwing the event that night, and the and the label absolutely was not. They were not involved in any way. They were in LA the whole time. They didn't even know that the event was happening that night. But they, they were associated with all the artists who were playing that night because they had released their music. So the way liability laws and logic works, I guess, is that they were also uh, named in those lawsuits. And so for them to get cleared, that took almost a year. It was a very, very stressful and long process for Britt Brown and Amanda Kramer, the owners of 100% Silk. I don't know, I, I believe Britt wrote about it separately for The Wire magazine or something because he had like a very crazy experience with the, the legal system and trying to clear his name essentially. It was very hard for him and, and also very expensive. So there was a moment when I was like, is this thing even coming out? Like everything kind of points to the uh, opposite because um, I can't seem to figure out like how they should be released. Now the label that's um, supposed to release it is having trouble then on my end I had some issues trying to figure out who you know should help me how and where I should finish this like all the stuff was in San Francisco I was in LA you know the album was finished like sometime last fall but then everyone involved decided that it'd be better to release it in the new year so then there was like an additional four or five months long delay and as it often happens with music and releases among all the turmoil that you described, had you ever considered just leaving the EP unfinished for any reason? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it's just not the way I operate. I just don't like to, to drop the ball. And in, in, when it comes to something like this, especially, it's like I'm not a big believer in uh, the afterlife and like people watching over us. But in, in this case, I was like, that would be so lame if I did not finish that and we were so close um, let's say if we only you know had completed like 25% of it then maybe because then you have to do the whole whole thing basically and, and guess what she would have done but all the songs were there so I just really felt like I had no excuse and what emotions and thoughts you know did you have throughout this whole process I know grief is something that people deal with for a long time um, but you know, was there ever like, was there ever doubt? Was there ever happiness to light at the end of the tunnel that you could finally finish this project? Yeah, it was all those things. Uh, I've never really experienced a loss like this. I've had grandparents die and that's, you know, completely different because they were old and had physical ailments. So this just kind of rocked my world in a very new and different way. And so for the release, that was definitely like the light at the end of the tunnel because Sometimes when I would listen to the tracks as we were working on them after the fire, I could just hear or see Chelsea be like super excited about something or 
um, let's say when we got the masters and I listened to those, I was like, she really loved this part. Or even when we got like a pitchfork review or something like that, like uh, she was always very grateful for any sort of press and acknowledgement. Definitely didn't take it for granted. So these little moments, or even talking to you right now, like she obviously respected RA and things like that. So I can always kind of uh, recognize those things that she'd be very excited about, and that makes makes me happy too. If these posthumous records can make a last statement about an artist, what do you think this EP says about Chirushi? In her case, I can only you know, there's too many nice things I can say, but mostly like insane work ethic and also this ability to focus on the beautiful and the, and the now and the fact that she was you know DJing doing what she loved that night that speaks volumes in a way uh, and yeah she was just always uh, always down <laughs> and the music I think also expresses that sentiment and just her vast knowledge of dance music culture and uh, gear and just uh, you know all these things that are in the greater scheme of things in the world don't matter to that many but those who get it get it we're back with Steve Knudsen speaking about Arthur Russell's posthumous releases. With some artists who have a bunch of unfinished or unreleased music in the vault, you know, sometimes these long streams of posthumous releases can run the risk of being viewed as as money grabs. You know, when you're capitalizing on an artist's name and death, um, you know, especially if they died tragically and before their time, as Arthur had, is that perception right. something you you've ever you've ever worried about? No, because you know. I went into this with no expectations whatsoever. I only went into this because I loved Arthur's music and, and very selfishly, I did it because I wanted to hear the music. I needed it more in my life than I kind of needed anything else at the time. And I've been very happy that it's resonated with so many people. You know, we're not scraping the bottom of the barrel looking for like, you know, the last note of, of Arthur to try and sell something. So how much would you estimate still remains of his archives? There's a lot of material there to listen to. And maybe our proudest moment is we had an arrangement. We did an arrangement with the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center. Um, they now hold Arthur's entire archive of all of his papers and all of his tapes. Arthur's part of the uh, American Music Collection at the Rogers and Hammerstein Library in Lincoln Center. And now anybody can go to that library and look at Arthur's papers or listen to this to his music, you know, to, to study it as a, as a fan or as a musician or as a sociologist or something. So to have our, all of Arthur's material in one place, it's such an amazing thing. It's kind of like the culmination of everything we've been working on. So there's still music that people can hear there that, that may or may not ever come out. But I do have two other projects that I'm working on now. This is my labor of love, you know. I'm really happy that it's coming through to other people that, 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 that they're getting it too. So, you know, I couldn't ask for anything more. Tom and I couldn't ask for anything more. I'm Nick Sinner, and I'm the director at Marcus Intellects Music Foundation. Drum and bass visionary Marcus Intellects passed away two years ago. While an EP and a number of tracks have been released posthumously, we were also interested in another element of Marcus's legacy, the foundation that's been set up in his name. I guess there's a bit of background about us. Uh, the foundation is a community interest company, so we're not for profit and uh, 
we launched in October 2018 um, in the in the memory of Marcus. You know, um, obviously as a musician and, and person as well, Marcus was very influential in Manchester uh, and and globally, I, I suppose as well. Um, so it's our aim to continue working in the same spirit he did which was you know supporting lots of emerging artists and being i guess for us an initiative in the city that's able to support artists on that level if possible you know um, that that's what we aim to do you know provide experienced mentoring support to nurture and guide young people um you know who want to develop careers in music we're a platform committed to creating opportunities through a range of creative and cultural activities. So we do a lot of things like workshops, seminars and events, um, all, all with a network of you know, good people that, that we're surrounded by, uh, lots of who are Mar- Marcus's friends, uh, as well as people that do want to support our cause, as it were. What we've done so far is do a lot of outreach work. So we're working with colleges, universities and local arts initiatives and we're doing a lot of our work from there. You know, again, it's people that want to take part and help support what we do. Enabling musicians to to get that head start. We're about to launch an event um, called Foundation, which is... I suppose it's more of an ongoing series of standalone events. Again, that's kind of inclusive of live shows and the music workshops and and lots of different creative programming with the aim to continue supporting emerging music talent, but also, you know, add something to to the Manchester music scene. Marcus was a very close friend of mine. I I knew Marcus since um, his days working at Eastern Block and, you know, we became very good friends since then. You know, he was just a really, really good guy. Certainly as musicians, you know, there's so many people that would definitely say that, you know, they they owe their career to to Marcus just the way that he was able to to support them. And um, I think that was one of the reasons why it, it just felt like the right thing to do. And also that, you know... Marcus's family, you know, his mum and his partner Ayumi were very supportive about what what we wanted to do and, you know, again, trusted what we wanted to do. So that was, yeah, a a nice thing to sort of hear and it just made made us all feel like we we can do something good here. And, you know, I think with us, we we just want to make sure that we can build engagement with with people and offer worthwhile opportunities and and support young people you know we want to put people at the center of arts and creative processes you know so they come away with you know really good experiences for many people including myself it's hard to talk about death death is dark it's overwhelmingly real, uncomfortable, scary, it's final. But discussing it through a music lens helped me see things in a different light. While these interviews and aforementioned records are born out of, and maybe even despite, tragic circumstances, it's just as important to remember how these people lived and that they lived doing what they loved. That even while their physical being is no longer here, the music that succeeds them is a comforting reminder of the joy they brought and continue to bring with each listen.
I asked all of our contributors what the concept of a posthumous release means to them now having worked on one. Well, here's Maria Minerva. I guess what I learned is that you'll never be ready to deal with someone's legacy after they pass. It's really quite strange. I'm happy, I feel happy that I've been able to help Chelsea's mom and sister navigate like music world, like get her signed up for different author societies and just make sure that her legacy gets preserved. I like after the fire happened, there were so many crazy things happening the same week, for example, like week or two after her death, like her artist page disappeared from Facebook and you realized like how many different um, elements there are to a person's life and work and how when they're gone, like something has to be done to make sure that all that stuff is preserved and taken care of. Here's Steve Knudsen. The thing is, I don't think about this stuff as posthumous. I know that sounds weird. All I think about is like, here's all this amazing music. Let's listen to these songs. Let's think about like putting together just a great album with these songs and then kind of going from there. Just like, just cause nobody ever heard it before doesn't mean it's not relevant or contemporary or anything. Here's Ashes 57. I think it's important to continue the legacy of artists just because why not? Death is a very difficult thing. And when artists are very prolific, I feel like it's a shame that to be limited by this moment. And um, for example, uh, Rashad had like so many tracks that he will never show the world. I think it's a shame to just keep it um, on our desktop and not releasing them. Releasing those tracks is, for me, keeping the artist alive a little bit longer and also in the memory of the living people. Thanks to Crystal and everyone who shared their story with us there. Today, RA is launching a new multimedia series dedicated to electronic music and the climate crisis. Tom Faber has been looking into the environmental impact of physical music formats like vinyl. Here's Tom. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. I moved to a new house a few months ago. And in the moving van, I noticed one of my records had snapped. It wasn't an important vinyl, but I wasn't sure how to dispose of it. Is vinyl recyclable? Looking into this question online, I discovered that records are made of pure PVC, a substance I knew was far from ecologically friendly. I soon found myself diving down a rabbit hole of discussion, debate and calculations about the environmental impact of vinyl records and whether there are any good alternatives. What should I be doing as a vinyl lover who also wants to look after the planet? I decided to talk to people in the industry who think about this all day long. Environmental experts, record label owners, and vinyl manufacturers, to find out whether my record collection is damaging the planet. I first spoke to Shane Whitaker of Curved Pressings, which used to be a vinyl factory and is now a mastering suite that also organises pressings. He spoke to me from his office in East London. 
I started by asking whether he's seen the popularity of vinyl rise and fall across his career so far. Yeah, yeah, I mean, quite a few times, really. It's uh, It just goes up and down. I mean, at the moment, um, it's we're back on a down. Um, I mean, it's really popular. I'd say two years ago, it was it peaked again. All the major labels were repressing all the old vinyl. I mean, effectively, it became a victim of its own success in um, the major labels filled all the factories and um, all the independents like uh, me and people that I work with and for um, kind of got pushed to the side. I think I've seen it go two or three times even in the last 15 years become popular fallout and inevitably what happens is you know when something's fashionable it falls out of fashion and then suddenly no, there's no work about so it's uh, yeah, it's a weird one really just because something's super popular it's uh, not necessarily a good thing for the business in general you know tell me about the environmental impact of producing vinyl i mean it's heavy industry you know with heavy industry comes big machinery huge power supplies what goes into pressing a record is phenomenal i mean when we built the factory it was it kind of unfolded into quite a shocking monster, really. I mean, like the, boi- the boiler's hydraulic system. The boiler itself is an eight-ton boiler. You know, we were having to up our gas supply to a, a four-inch tube with a almost a reverse turbo sort of sucking the gas out of the ground because the supply wasn't uh, enough to run the place. Hydraulic systems. If you actually go to a pressing plant, it is... It's, it's big stuff in one way. The PVC pellets that the vinyl are pressed from are effectively a byproduct from the petrochemical industry because they're, they're oil, essentially, you know, like all plastic. So it's a fossil fuel, effectively. When we were running the factory, yeah, it's, it's a, a heavy oil environment, you know. When you're walking around between the machines pressing the records, like the, the oil on the floor eats your shoes in a couple of weeks. It's dirty stuff. And then like the, 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 gal, the galvanizing side of it, from the lacquers to the metalwork to use on the machine, it's really heavy chemicals. And um, byproducts from when you've used the chemicals to, to make the, the, the galvanizing have got to be taken away by special companies and disposed of in special ways. And it's all that you don't really even think about this sort of stuff in, in the manufacture of anything until you're actually in the game and you think oh my god where's all this when i get when i hand this tub of spent dodgy chemicals to, to this company that um you know gets rid of them in however they get rid of them you know what do they do with it you know but like i say i, I don't i don't see it day to day anymore because i we don't run the, the factory but i mean it doesn't mean it doesn't still go on and without a massive rethink of the product itself, there's, I don't think there's any way to change it. It was the height of uh, research to make records in the 50s or, you know, and, now, and there was so much money in the music business then to make all the machinery into R&D. It's just not there now. So there will never be the, the multi-millions of pounds needed to, to make a product that's greener, that does the same thing. Do you know what I mean? You can't make a record in a green way. You have to rethink how a record is and make it in a completely different way from a completely different product. Maybe recycled plastics, for example. Shane makes the process of producing records sound pretty toxic. But how can we actually measure the environmental impact of these vinyl? I spoke to Chiara Badiali, an expert on sustainability in the creative industries. Hi, my name is Chiara. I work for a charity called Julie's Bicycle that was founded from within the UK music industry just over 10 years ago um, to help empower 
the industry to take action on climate change. Vinyl is a really physical format, so I think that question of environmental impact immediately comes to the forefront of our minds when we think about vinyl at the moment. Um, I mean, we even talk about vinyl by weight and a heavier vinyl is considered to be better quality. So there is something about that physicality, I think, that, that just brings the environmental impact um, to the forefront. Um, to, to talk you through some of the impacts, if we take a record through its different life stages, we've got the impact of the raw materials and the manufacture. Then we've got the impact of distribution and retail, like the electricity used in stores, for example. And then there's the so-called use phase. So how you and I might listen to a record when it's with us. And the question of what happens to it at the end of its life when we don't want it anymore. So at these different stages, in terms of the raw material and manufacture, vinyl is made from PVC, polyvinyl chloride which comes from chlorine and ethylene. Um, ethylene is derived from oil or natural gas, so it's, it's a fossil fuel byproduct, basically, um, like all plastics. Um, there is a reason we use it for records, um, because it's durable, it's cheap, it's relatively easy to form, it's stable, you know, it's got, um, it's quite low static, so all of those things make it a really good material to put music on. But it's a fairly toxic manufacturing process for the people involved, the, the PVC itself. Um, then you have the sort of other chemical additives that you have to put into it to, say, stabilizing agents um, to give the plastic certain qualities. Um, and some of those are really toxic. For a long time, they used lead, a stabilizing agent, um, in records. And then you've got other chemicals that get used in the pressing process, like silver nitrate. And some of those more toxic chemicals are, are being sort of controlled by legislation more and more. Um, beyond the raw materials, you, you have the impact of the manufacturing process itself. And that's mainly energy use for things like the cooling and the heating of the steam that gets used in the pressing, um, operating the machinery. And there is some research going on in this space, like uh, in the Netherlands, for example, where they're looking at injection molding and, and how that can reduce energy use by up to 60% in the manufacturing process. Moving on from that, there's the distribution and retail. You've got the fuel use for the transport. Again, you've got electricity use in stores and warehouses and the electricity that we use to actually listen to the record and play it. And then, yeah, at the end of its life, uh, what happens to it? PVC records, for a consumer, they're basically impossible to recycle. There's, there's nowhere you can really take them. PVC recycling happens on industrial scales. Um, and it's also, one thing is, it's very toxic when it's burned because it releases loads of dioxins. So try not to let your vinyl end up in energy from waste incinerators. Um, so is it an ecological disaster? I think, as with all manufacturing, it has a footprint at all of its different stages. And, and if we want to think about the environmental impact of it, we have to think about how we can address that at every stage. But isn't vinyl only, vinyl records are only a fraction of PVC which is used and manufactured? Why should we particularly care about this? You're right. It's I think it's less than a percent of global PVC use. Um, goes into manufacturing records. So you could say, you know, we're a tiny part of this massive machine, so why does it matter? Um, or the other way you could contextualize it as well is that the, the main cause of climate change is the burning of fossil fuels um, for things like energy, like electricity, transport, and so on and so forth. 
So we, we could ignore it. I think it's looking at the music industry as a whole and the impact within that and knowing where we have to get to, which is a massive and rapid reduction in environmental impact. And we can't afford to leave out any part of the supply chain in that. Um, on the other hand, I think we do, you're right, in that we do have to be careful about where we put our energies and how we prioritise the areas that have the largest impact first. Have you heard of any um, attempts to create records records with different materials, not PVC? I think there are a few experiments. Again, in the Netherlands, through that injection moulding process, they are experimenting with different kinds of plastics that work better with the injection mould, um, but they have had a bit of trouble in terms of getting the same kind of durability out of them. I know there are some people who have experimented with PET, um, which is one of the most recyclable plastics because it's so widespread. But again, similar problems around quality and format so far. My name is Harm Teunissen. I'm one of the owners of Simcon. And Simcon is based in the Netherlands. This is Harm. He runs one of the companies Kiara mentioned, Green Vinyl Records, who are trying to create a more sustainable alternative to PVC records. He spoke to me from his factory in the Netherlands over Skype. We originally came from supplying raw materials for the CD, DVD industry. So we are selling chemicals, machines, parts for this industry. So my customers are also people who, who produce CD and DVD machines for the materials that we deliver to them. But some of my customers also produce vinyl records. And that's why the connection is there, that we are starting with a point of view from our history in CD-DVD. We try to back better engineer it back to the vinyl, for the, into the vinyl injection molding machines. Harm's green vinyl project uses injection molding to press records, which he estimates uses 60% less energy than traditional pressing. Instead of stamping the grooves into the vinyl, Plastic is injected into a mould to fill the grooves. This means no material is wasted, unlike with traditional pressing, and the machinery can last longer before being replaced. The material he uses for the records is different, too. So what do you use in place of PVC? I have uh, my own uh, secret material. Secret recipe? <laughs> yeah, of course. You can understand that uh, we are still in, in development and right now we know how to make the process. And we are now finishing our new mold and the stuff and we know where to go. And of course, uh, I wanna keep my, a uh, little bit my advances. We are now working on it for three years. And later when it comes on the market, people will find out very fast. But it's a material which you can also recycle so it's called Green Vinyl Record, but it's actually not vinyl, is that right? It's not vinyl, nope. And how can you take this project from a prototype to a widely used technique? Yeah, it's compatible to your old uh, vinyl player that you have at home. So you don't have to buy a new vinyl player, it's completely compatible. So consumer-wise, nothing changes, nothing, only production-wise, yeah, it, it uses different and faster and newer techniques. Only it has to be accepted. There is a demand for this product. We, we see it ourselves. So one thing I read about that I thought was interesting is someone said that 
your records don't smell like vinyl records. It's true because it's not vinyl. <laughs> absolutely true. That's the only thing what is absolutely true. That's the only emo emotion I cannot copy. Or I have to maybe start selling uh, PVC perfume. I don't know, smelling perfume. But that's the only thing I really, I cannot copy. After learning about the technical side of things, I started thinking about labels. They often run on punishingly slim profit margins, and it can be far more expensive to run an environmentally friendly operation. One label that takes green considerations seriously is independent giant Ninja Tune. I spoke to co-founder Matt Black. So what first made you aware of the environmental impact of your label? You know, in 1997, I think it was, we released a record called Timber. And this was a sort of audiovisual cut-up poem about deforestation. So we released a vinyl of that and it became clear to us that we needed to sort of get our packaging and manufacturing congruent with the feelings and, and message that we had in that tune. So then we started looking at, well, how could we make this release a, a more environmentally friendly? So we started getting recycled card packaging and looking more deeply into that whole process and finding out about it. So would you be able to give me a sort of brief uh, rundown of the changes the label has made to be more environmentally friendly over its history? Yeah, so I'd say we shouldn't just talk about vinyl here because there's a bigger picture. I mean, for instance, we made a decision a few years ago to stop using CD Jewel packaging because it's sort of very wasteful and a kind of horrible format uses all that plastic and they always break anyway so we completely axed that uh, we take quite a lot of interest in uh, the energy that ninja tune uses for instance our servers are with a company called digital ocean who use largely renewable energy we selected them for that reason did you know that spotify and apple music run entirely 100 percent on renewable energy which is pretty good you know good uh, leadership by those companies um we're fitting solar cells on the roof of Ninja Tune. That's an ongoing project. We had the wonderful Julie's Bicycle come in and audit us. And it was quite a few years ago now, about 10 years ago, actually, we decided we needed to get some help with our environmental practice and questions. So we got them in this organization. They audited us and pointed out where, um, you know, we could make improvements and then we adopted many of those improvements for instance in the heating the electricity supply at ninja tune and other aspects of the building and also of our manufacturing process as well over the last few years we recognized that flying is a heavy contributor uh, to co2 so we started looking into the best ways to offset that so ninja tune are contributing to different programs in the UK and abroad to plant trees. That sounded like an effective way of mitigating CO2 and by helping encourage trees and stop them being chopped down, it's, it's a good idea. So it sounds like since you guys do pay a huge amount of attention to this in many aspects of your work, that probably vinyl pressing and production is one of the more toxic and damaging things that Ninja Tune does, is that true? I think it's true because, you know, vinyl, what is it? It's plastic, it's made from oil. So, I mean, the, the, we're all aware now that of the, the 
the flood of plastic which is drowning the planet and drowning all of us and that's a really ugly thing so we have to consider about each bit of plastic that we use and vinyl is part of that so uh, recently we've been um, talking to our pressing uh, people about how to do better with that um, one thing we do is that the plastic uh, packaging for vinyl that it comes with a code and then you, you enter that code and that can donate money to a charity actually the charity is water aid so if you're aware of the damage that vinyl and plastic putting that into the environment can do why would you not just stop pressing vinyl altogether well i mean that's a good hard question and may maybe all of us should just stop doing all the things that we're doing that are hurting the environment but then we probably wouldn't have a life so everyone's got to consider all the things that they do and decide what they can improve on and what they're willing to give up. Now, we are a record company and we sell music and vinyl's part of our income. And so it would be hard to, to cut that out. Um, I'm not sure if it's quite good enough to say we're doing our best to sort of find the most efficient, least harmful way of doing that. Maybe you're right, maybe we should just stop doing it. But it is part of our business and if we did cut that out, it would have a knock-on effect of no money which we pay to support our artists on the label. Would the label struggle without vinyl? Good question. I think the reality is that in fact it's quite a small part of our actual sales but it's part of our perception as a record label and you know it's a hipster format and the people that buy that are kind of you know, this idea of the the tip rudder you know they tend to be influencers and quite significant people in the business so you would lose a certain influence there by cutting that off. I don't know, I mean, we, it's something that we, we cons would consider. It's easy to perhaps point the finger at vinyl, but there's many other things which have an environmental cost. Really, you need to have a sort of cross the board look at everything you're doing, and not just record companies, but everyone in their life needs to do that. Do I do that in my life? Well, at least I'm a, more aware of it and I'm considering these things. Every decision we make is powerful because everything has a cost. It seems the more you dig, the more complicated questions of environmental damage become. It's hard to untangle vinyl production from the ecological cost of the rest of the music industry. But I eventually asked our expert Chiara the one question I was really afraid of. Do you feel that there are sustainable ways to use vinyl or should we just stop? I think as a consumer, sure, you, you can stop buying vinyl records um, if it makes you feel better. I would say if you then turn around and you're still using loads of disposable coffee cups or other plastic packaging, then you've given yourself quite a raw deal there mm. in terms of you know cutting out a product that lasts for a long time, that has a cultural value, um, but not the things that are immensely disposable that we could more easily replace with other formats. Do you collect records? Do you have any? Uh, yeah, we, so my partner and I, we have probably about three, four hundred records at home. And I, I did run some numbers actually around this, just in terms of the, the kind of embodied carbon impact of, of that record collection. Sorry, what's an embodied carbon impact? So, the, the embodied carbon impact is basically the carbon emissions that sit in a product, um, either, again, from the extraction of the raw materials or their processing, the manufacture, um, transport and distribution, so all the carbon emissions that have made it possible for that product to be with you. So if we look at, say, 150 gram vinyl, that's about half a kilo of embodied carbon just based on the PVC. 
Um, and then that doesn't include manufacturing, distribution, energy use in warehouses, retail stores. So Julie's Bicycle did a study around 10 years ago and we tried to find those figures um, for CDs though, not, not for vinyl, but if we use the figures that we had for CDs around distribution, um, we're looking at around a kilo of emissions per record. So those three, 400 records that I have at home are about half a ton of carbon emissions, which sounds huge and I think it's not negligible, but it's also about a third or half of a return flight between London and New York. Um, so again, putting that into context in terms of what we have to achieve um, in terms of climate change and emissions reductions, um, vinyl might not be where to start. Is streaming better? It's a really hard comparison to make because the number of variables that you have to consider to make that comparison, and a lot of them come down to consumer behavior. Just in terms of the volumes of different artists and music that you and I can consume nowadays through digital streaming or downloads, um, it wouldn't be possible or it wouldn't have been possible for most of us to listen to the same number of artists or, or the same broad range if we had to get everything on physical products. So listening habits have changed, which also makes the like-for-like -like comparison really difficult. Um, of course, although you can't see it in the same way, streaming music is underpinned by a huge physical infrastructure of servers, transmission networks, and of course, kind of the devices that we listen to that we usually turn over every one or two years. And yeah, all of that energy that's needed to store and retrieve the data for the streaming. So if we think of this in terms of listening habits, um, once a, a vinyl record is produced, its environmental impact is kind of set in that. You've still got the energy consumption of your turntables and, and your speakers at home, but, but the manufacturer is, is the manufacturer. You've got the physical impact in there. Um, with streaming, every time you listen to something, you're reusing that energy to access the data, to retrieve it from the server, to have it brought to you. So there is a tipping point really in terms of the energy use where if you listen to something repeatedly, the streaming will have used more energy than the equivalent physical product. Again, where that tipping point is depends on a lot of outside factors. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the most useful comparison to make between streaming and, and records. But would you say if, for example, there's a new album out and it's out on vinyl and streaming and I really want to listen to it, should I make my decision based on how often I think I'm going to hear it? if I want to try and do something that's a little better for the environment. I think that's where listening to something digitally before you buy it is is great because it means you're not buying something that's then going to sit on your shelf or end up in the bin um, within a short space of time, yeah. We did a study with uh, various music industry partners a few years ago, for example, making the point at the time that we should move away from physical promos because Promos aren't going to have a very long shelf life, so why are we still making them? Is there a relevant distinction to be made between streaming music and digital downloads of music in terms of their environmental impact? Yes, in the sense that your digital download, you download it and it sits on your own storage space. If you're streaming something, you are using the energy that it takes to retrieve that piece of data and get it streamed to you every time that you listen to it. Unless, of course, you're using streaming services in a way where you're storing um, or caching a lot of songs locally offline. There's a lot to weigh up in choosing which format is most environmentally friendly. But there's something about vinyl that I just find hard to let go. Maybe it's the physicality, or the tradition, or something else. 
I heard from harm that there are greener methods being researched, but I don't know if they'll be embraced by pressing plants. I asked Shane from Curved Pressings if he'd be interested in switching to a more sustainable way to press records. At the end of the day, it's all down to uh, audio quality, really. If somebody's going to make a product that's greener, but it isn't as good, it's going to be very difficult to make the, the buyer or the end user, especially like seeing as the whole point of vinyl is the, the quality aspect. You know, if you are going to use recycled plastics, they're going to be more volatile than a thing that's designed specifically with the elasticity and the heating and the cooling process to make a record and to make the grooves perfect to make the, the music sound good. If you you can recycle old records, we used to do that in our, in our factory. You literally just grind them down, punch the, the centres out where where the paper centre labels are and feed your old records through a grinder to make like small pieces and then put that back in the machine uh, <coughs> and remelt them and repress them into other records. But I mean that process does work and does happen. Uh, but the uh, the audio quality is not as good. Once the thing has gone through a heating and cooling process, you know, if you do it again it doesn't have the same properties. If the plastic or the product that you used didn't need as much power to melt uh, and sort of settle into the grooves to make a replica of the metal of the record, then you could possibly, you know, use solar power or some other kind of renewable energy to, to work the machine as well. You know, it, it is there. It's just having the, the millions of pounds to invest in, um, in the R&D. And who's got that? The average run of records is 300 records. Most, uh, you know, small labels that I work with, uh, they're all operating on break-even. There's no money in the industry, you know. It's, it, I guess it's, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because you've got people that are into their music, they're probably into uh, renewable energy, that are, would like all these things to happen. But how does it happen when there's no money there to push the research forward? It's a question that people seem to be grappling with all around the industry. How do we push things forward? It's clear that vinyl and PVC are bad for the environment, but so are other methods of listening to music. In fact, the more I looked into it, the more I realised that almost everything I do in daily urban living is damaging the planet in some way. So it becomes a question of proportion. What changes in my life will make the most impact? I kept thinking that I love my records, and if I'm honest with myself, I doubt they're the most environmentally damaging part of my lifestyle. I had found out what to do with my record that had broken when I was moving house, but I was still feeling a little lost. I asked Chiara how we were supposed to find a balance between listening to the music we love and caring for the planet. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is sort of a body collecting all the research that we have about climate science um, and putting it out there for policymakers to base their decisions on, they released a report last year looking at what it's going to take for us to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And according to that, at our best estimate, we have to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 at the latest to have a chance at staying below 1.5. Um, so if we take that as our sort of guiding principle, again, I, I would like to come back to this idea of, of prioritising your areas of highest impact and where you can make the biggest difference the fastest. And we still have so many easy wins within that. So, for example, is your home or your studio powered by renewable electricity? Um, because ultimately that's what's going to power your speakers and your various listening habits. Um, and again, you know, 
other areas are you getting public transport to get to gigs again coming back to this idea of, of flights and, and the huge elephant in the room that is the impact of flying um, and transport and travel how can we get to a point where DJs are speaking to their teams about how to route tours in the best way possible, cutting down on one-off gigs that require like long return flights, and also about sort of offsetting approaches and strategies. And then for, for music businesses, I think manufacturers and, and labels, it's about how to improve manufacturing processes and reducing waste and reducing overpressing, and yeah, continuing to invest in the research and development into new materials, into new manufacturing processes. And of course, more broadly as businesses, I think every music business should put in place a, a goal for when they're gonna get to net zero carbon emissions and then figure out how they get there. I think we don't completely know how we're going to get there yet um, and some of it is going to be out of our control because we depend on these much larger systems and political decisions but this is also about starting a journey and starting to put climate and environment into our priorities and showing that we care and that it's important also to allow governments to make the kind of more sweeping changes that will create broader change. If there was someone looking at that record in a shop and wondering whether or not to buy it you'd say maybe it's worth taking into consideration and it does matter a bit, but there are other much bigger ways that you can make a difference. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's, yeah. Do you really want it? And if it is yes, then, you know, again, what's the energy that you're going to use to play it? That's it for this month's edition of The Hour. Thank you for listening. We're back next month with more documentaries, interviews and discussion. Thank you.